Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Thessalonians chapter 4 tonight, so let's open in prayer and we'll start. Father, thanks for this time of study and thank you for this wonderful night and for the opportunity to open this most precious book and to hear you speak to us and I pray that we would be able to listen and apply to our hearts and lives in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we just started a little bit of the first, just the first couple of verses here, Um, so we'll just go back and pick that up and I hate to admit it, but I left all my notes at home. So I'm going to be calling from my memory, and we'll see how good my memory is. Um, but Paul now turns around. In chapter 3, he, you see his heart for these people. Um, in chapter 2, he is defending himself, his character. And in chapter 3, he is showing his heart, his love for the people. And in chapter 4, he turns to some more practical matters. Um, particularly on Christian living. And I think these are very interesting principles that we're going to see in this chapter. And I don't know if we'll get through the entire chapter tonight, but we'll certainly make a dent in it. Finally, brethren, then brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. You're doing well, but you can do better. You can always do better. Um... And we talked a little bit last week about how the Christian life is a constant pursuit. Um, It's not that we ever reach Christ's likeness in this life, but we try to get closer and closer to it. We're always reaching ahead, reaching forward to become more like him. And Paul is encouraged. He's not telling them that you guys are really bad, you guys aren't really doing well at all. He's not really condemning them at all. He just says you can do better. And how do you do that? Well, as you receive from us, how to please and walk, how to walk and please God. You observed our behavior. You observed us. Paul was a model of what it meant to walk and to serve and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling them back to remind them of what he had received what they had received from him, not only in the message he preached, but in the life he lived. And I think that's important. Today we have a lot of people that tell us how to live, but they don't do it very well themselves. Um, They talk about holiness, but they're not holy. They talk about giving, but they don't give. They talk about all kinds of things that they don't do. Paul says, no, you remember what we did and how we acted. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God. Um, People today are searching for God's will. They want to know what God's will is. Everybody wants to know, I wonder what God's will is. I wonder if God wants me to work at this particular location. I wonder if God wants me to marry this person. Or I wonder if God wants me to, to take this vocation or whatever it is. Um, and they get all bound up on trying to figure out what God's unique will is for them when they miss what God's general will is for them. One of the wills of God for you, personally, is your sanctification. The idea of sanctification is just holiness that you be a holy person. That is God's will for you. You don't need to think about it. You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to, to go into and, and, and go into fasting and prayer over it. It's God's will that you be holy. Now, if I had my notes here, I could tell you all about six or seven things that's God's will, but I'll pull them from off the top of my head, although I don't have the verses. We find here that it's God's will that you be sanctified. And the idea there of sanctified is just that it's God's will that you be holy. It's not that you go up on a mountain and grow a beard and remove yourself from life. Rather, it's that in your daily conduct, you live a godly Christian life, a separated holy life. Um, God, it says, is not willing that any should perish. So God's will also for a person is that they be saved. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved, but that's God's will. It's always God's will. You don't need to pray. I wonder if it's God's will that this person come to know him. No, it's always God's will. It's God's will that you be saved. It's God's will that uh, you give thanks. And there's a verse that says, this is the will of God, even your thanksgiving. You've got to give thanks in all things. 
Giving thanks in all things, for this is the will of God concerning you, is the verse. And I can't remember exactly. I think it's in Colossians. But it's a, it's a life of thankfulness. And I think if there's anything missing in the church today, it's probably one of that, that thing there. Is anybody happy about anything? Usually. I mean, we never have enough. We always want another car, another house, more money, a bigger job, whatever it is. And nobody's thankful for what God has done for them. And then when we face a trial, we, our immediate response is, God, where did you go? Instead of thanking God for his provision for us through that trial, thanking God for the many blessings he's given us. And we lose sight of that. We're unthankful. Um, another piece of God's will is that you be spirit-filled. This is in um, Ephesians chapter 5. And what does it mean to be spirit-filled? It means that day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, you do what God wants you to do. That's nothing more. Um, yeah. Just uh, in each situation, what is it God would want me to do? And, and that's walking in the Spirit. And uh, that's God's will for us. Um, God's will is that we suffer righteously. And that's in Peter. I don't have the exact verse in, in, off the top of my head. But the idea there is it's God's will that when you suffer, it should be that you suffer for righteousness' sake, not because you were um, sinful. I know a lot of Christians are just obnoxious. And they suffer, and they think they're suffering for Jesus, when really they're just suffering because they're pain. No, it's that you suffer for righteousness' sake, that you be godly. And if you suffer, that's God's will. It's God's will for you. And there are a couple others I can't remember off the top of my head. But these are God's will. And what we're talking about here, it's God's will that you be sanctified. What does that mean? That you live a holy life. So if somebody comes in and says, I want to discern God's will for my life. I want to discern if, God, if it's God's will that I marry this person. And in the course of the conversation, you find out that they are living with that person. It's kind of hard for them to figure out if that's God's will when they're not sanctified. The point is, you need to work on these. Now, if you work on these, what's God going to do? Well, there's a very wonderful promise in Psalm 37, and that is God will give you the desires of your heart. Because the desires are coming from Him. If you are spirit-filled, sanctified, living holy life, giving thanks in all things, suffering for the cause of Christ, where, where do your desires come from? Where do the things you want to do come from? Well, they come from the Lord. Why did I come to Open Door? Because I spent a month fasting and praying about it? No, because I decided I wanted to come here. What we do is we make the God's will this mystical thing. We make it so that like, it's hidden under a rock and we've got to go through fasting and prayer and, and put down all these fleeces you know, so we, we make sure we don't miss something. God wants you to know as well a lot worse than you want to know as well. He's not playing games. He's not hiding it under rocks and behind trees. He wants you to know it. And if you are spirit-filled, living a holy life, sanctified, praying, exercising spiritual disciplines, the desires that God wants you to do are going to be there. And you do what you want to do because that's coming from the Lord. Because he's giving you desires. Of course, if it's not sinful or anything like that. But it's interesting. I, I know one guy, one particular guy, any time you ask him to do anything, well, I'll pray about it. I'll pray about it. And uh, what I found out after the years, after a few years, is that he's always praying about doing something for the Lord, but really never he never does anything for the Lord. You're always praying about it, but you're never doing anything. Um, God wants you to do something. Vance Havner says, I'd rather be doing something for him, even if it's making mistakes. At least I'm doing something. I'm not just sitting. Um, I love the story about Harry Ironside, who was preaching at a particular church in Illinois one time, and he needed a student from the Moody Bible Institute to drive him down and bring him back. And he asked this one particular student, and the student said, well, let me pray about it, Dr. Ironside. Harry Ironside, of course, was a pastor of Moody Church. And Dr. Iron said, no, that's okay. I'll find somebody else. It's my luck that God will lead you to take me down and not lead you to bring me back. Um, the point is, God's will is not a mystical thing for the most part.
It's very clear. Um, God gives you the desires. We get this idea that if I'm in the will of God, I'm miserable. If I'm doing God's will, it's at a job I hate. I absolutely hate. That's God's will for me. So I'm in a job I hate. Or I'm always having trouble. That's not God's will. Now, it may be that you have trouble at your job, but it's not God's will that His will is miserable. Rather, it's a joyous thing. And here he identifies one piece of that, your sanctification, and then he defines what that means, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That's the one in the context of the Thessalonian believers. Now, they lived in a pornographic society. It was worse than today. But the only difference between their society and today's society is we have pornography on the internet and on magazines and videos and movies. We're just able to get more access to it. But they had the same problem back then. And in the Roman Empire, it was not uncommon at all for sexual immorality to be the norm rather than the exception. Um, Roman leaders all had their mistresses, all had multiple wives. Um, the young men of those days um, visited brothels on regular occasions. Um, that was just part of their life. That's part of their culture. Many of their religions were centered around um, sexual immorality and the mystery of religions. And Paul says, unlike the Gentiles who fall into that, God's will is that you be sanctified, particularly that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, what is sexual immorality? Well, it's any sexual activity outside of marriage, period. Um, whatever form that takes, whatever, whatever thing happens, it, it's outside of marriage, it's sexual immorality. And he says you should abstain from that. In other words, you should just stay away and not do it. Now, I find it interesting that the way we solve teenage pregnancy today is what do we do? Well, let's give the kids condoms and educate them. Whatever happened to abstinence? Oh, that's religious. You've got to keep religion out of this thing. I mean, that's what I hear. Keep religion out of it. Well, I think the world's finally catching on that maybe the best way to prevent teenage pregnancy is just abstinence. But we don't want to hear that. We're told, uh, you know, don't do that. And it's interesting, for many years in this church, I taught the singles class. And uh, on many occasions we talked about sexual purity, and yet time and time again, people in that class didn't hear a thing, and they, you know, they'd live together or whatever. Just again and again. And someone said that even Christian couples now, they're coming in for premarital counseling, at least half of them have had, it, on one or more occasions, had intercourse with one another. In other words, the idea of purity, and that is, is like, who wants that? You're weird if you actually believe that. Um, in the world, it's, it's a given. If you're engaged, you're living together. It's almost a given. Um, if you're not living with that person, there's something wrong. It's because you don't have enough money or whatever, but it's a given. Um, the Bible says that's not to be the case at all, but rather, in verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And the idea of own vessel there is your own body, your body, that you should know how to possess it. Don't let your body possess you. You possess your body. Don't let your body tell you how to live. You tell your body how to live. But we don't have that today. The whole, the whole mood out there is against sexual purity. I surf the channel and I zip by where what Howard Stern is on there and a guy... I can't even stomach the guy. Even when you're surfing through the channels, you know, I don't even want to see the guy. Because to him, perversion is normal. It's normal. Turn on Jerry Springer. Perversion is normal. Or Sally, whatever, Jesse Raphael. Perversion is normal. Get the perverts on because it kicks the ratings up. And I, you know, I'm just surfing through the channels and I hear them talking about things that, that 10, 15 years ago you never heard on TV. And now it's just normal... Who, everybody's watching. And then I heard that some one of the highest rated shows among high school students is uh, Jerry Springer and um, uh, Howard Stern. And I'm sitting there saying, good night, what are they filling their brains with? Well, no wonder we have problems. You fill your minds with that stuff, it's going to come out. And so I want you to know how to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor, 
not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, not like the pagans. What's the problem with the pagans? They don't know God. They have the passion of lust. They're not able to control that. And I think the thing to understand is that apart from Christ, you can't control your flesh. It needs You need the power of Christ to enable you to live a holy life. But we don't want to live, or the church and many people in the church don't want to live holy lives. It's too hard. And the question then becomes, well, how, do, how can you live a holy life? I mean, practically, how can you... How can you live godly in this area? Well, I think just some common sense would help. For example, watch what you watch on TV. I mean, that's like a duh. But I know many Christians that watch junky shows and wonder why they have trouble. You know, like the the soap operas and stuff like that. Um, Most of the shows, most of the comedies are just worthless. I mean, you get your brain melted when you watch them. And saying here, just stay away from that. I mean, avoid it. Watch where you go with the magazine racks and watch what movies you look at. Watch what you entertain yourself with. I mean, just stay away from that stuff. There's something to just staying away. So many times Christians say, well, you know, I'm mature enough to handle that kind of stuff. No, you're not. Stay away from it. Stay away from it. Avoid it. Because why? You're not to be in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. And this was a real problem with the Thessalonian church. These people had just come out of paganism, and the draw of the flesh is very strong. Their entire life had been taken up with this activity, and now they're being told, stay away from sexual immorality. And it was a tough thing for them. And no doubt, many of their friends and their acquaintances thought they were nuts now, that they would actually abstain from this. They think they're crazy. They're prudes. And no doubt, it caused a lot of derision. And then in verse 6 gives uh, some reasons for this. Why is it that we are to possess our own vessel in sanctification and honor? Reason number one, we're not to be in the passion of lust like the other Gentiles. We're not like them, so quit acting like them. And Romans 6 talk and 7 talks a lot about this. You used to be in bondage to sin, but now you're not, so don't act like you still are. Stay away from it. And then reason number two, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Don't defraud your brother. And the idea there is not only brother, but brother and sister. When you engage in immorality with another person, you defraud that person. That's what I get. I get annoyed when people say, well, look, it's my own body. I can do with it what I want. No, it's not. What about the other person? What about them? What's the consequences for them? It doesn't just, well, we are, we, we are consenting adults. Don't give me that. You, you ruin each other's lives. And what Paul couches it here in terms of is defrauding. That means to take illegal advantage of somebody else. We're not to do that. Especially our brothers. Now, brother in this term would be our Christian brothers and sisters. Don't defraud your Christian brothers and sisters. And then the third reason why is it's not because the Lord is the avenger of all such. God will judge. God will judge. Um, It's interesting to go back to the Old Testament. You see in the Mosaic Law the death penalty given for certain offenses. Remember those offenses. Remember what some of those are? What did God require the death penalty for under Mosaic Law? Adultery was one of them. That was one. And adultery there was having sexual relationships with another man's wife or husband. What's some other death penalty ones? Murder. That's definitely one. What's another one? Not lying. 
Yeah, an unruly child. Boy, I'll tell you what. That would take care of some problems today, wouldn't it? There are a couple more. Idolatry was one. If you um, went off in idolatry, that, that required a death penalty. Um, also, homosexuality required a death penalty. Um, bestiality required a death penalty. Um, there's an occasion when a man violated the Sabbath and was given the death penalty. But generally, that was not enforced. Uh, <coughs> when you look at these, these are ma the main ones. What's common about all of those particular ones there? What's the common thread? What impact do they have? They're sins of the flesh. But lying and covetousness is in there too. Maybe stealing. You weren't put to death for stealing. I just I think one of the observations there is that all of these have a significantly negative effect on what? On family and on society. It's interesting. Family and society. Um, adultery, you would say that has a significantly negative impact on family. Murder, <laughs> come on, somebody's dead, so that that's, goes without saying. An unruly child, definitely. Idolatry, yeah, that, that destroys the very foundation of a society. These others, homosexuality, bestiality. It seems that whenever one sin impacted severely or negatively on society, that required the death penalty because the consequences of allowing those sins to go on were so destructive to an orderly society, to a family, to the very stability of a society. Whereas other sins that did not appear to impact that like that were not death penalty sins. Because, you know, somebody says, well, you know, murder is worse than lying. Well, in the eternal sense of the word, is it? No, all sin is sin. Sin is a sin is a sin. But in the impact that it has on society, the negative adverse effects it would have, there are differences. Sometimes it's very much more negative than others. And I think that's why God demanded the death penalty. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, such as we also forewarned you and testified. We warned you and testified of this, that God is the avenger of those who fall into this particular sin. Now how does God exact his vengeance? Well, it may be the active um, uh, execution of the person in the sense of stoning. It was in the Old Testament. It may be... Uh, more long-term, like with David, did David get away with his sin with Bathsheba? Well, no. He paid the price for that. Um, he didn't get away with it. It may be physical diseases. Is AIDS part of this? Absolutely. Along with all the other sexually transmitted diseases. You break the moral law of God, you are open to such penalties. doesn't mean that you don't try to do what you can to alleviate the suffering and to deal with that, the, the disease, but just understand that disease, those diseases are part of God's wrath against those who practice immorality. And the idea that, look, take yourself out of God's will. You know, herpes and all the sexual diseases that are out there are natural consequences. Mm -hmm. yeah. you, and there's lots of examples of where you don't have to say, God sent that to that individual. Right. It's the consequence of sin. Right. It's and not as... 
Yeah. No, God, God has built into the universe moral laws. Um, if you drink a lot, your liver gets hard. That's a natural consequence of, of you know, uh, of that. Uh, cocaine, if you too much cocaine, you fry your brain. Um, too much food, you can kill yourself with a heart disease or whatever. Um, the, the point is that I think you're right. God is building natural consequences in the universe. doesn't mean that you don't try to solve heart disease. You try to find cures for these diseases. But they are a natural consequence built into the universe for those who do that. Um, and people don't like to hear that. And, and what we want to do today is we want to do everything to avoid the consequences but still do the sin. You know, and that's that's the problem. We want to keep up the sin but not not necessarily have to pay the piper. Another reason, by the way, God said, do not do this, verse 7, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but unholiness. Um, why did God save you? And how do you glorify Him? You live a holy life. It's part of it. Um, some people think, well, when I became a Christian, God forgave me for my sin, so that means I can do anything I want. You ever hear that? Yeah, do anything you want. Hey, and I remember some guy had a big, a guy had a big cigar like that, had a big ashtray up on the pulpit. I'm going to teach you about Christian liberty, and he went over to Galatians and basically you do anything you want, kind of thing. Um, while there's cigar smoking on the on the uh, podium there. Uh, Christian liberty, you do what you want. Antinomianism. Um, why did God save you? Did God save you from your sin just to tell you to go back and sin? I mean, think about it. Why did, what did Christ do in the salvation process for us? I mean, what did he do? Well, he removed the penalty of sin, right? He removed the power of sin, according to Romans chapter 6 and 7, the power of sin is broken. I don't have to sin anymore. Um, he redeemed me, as it says in Titus, to present a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Um, he redeemed me in order to show forth his grace and his character. And, and what did Christ, what was the penalty that Christ had to pay to redeem me from my sin? Death. And the thing that amazes me is a Christian would say, Christ had, you know, you ask him, how did God deliver you from your sin? Well, Christ died for me. And in the same sense, I'll turn around and say, well, that means I can sin all I want. Christ didn't redeem you. I mean, you've got to understand, God paid the ultimate price to redeem you from your sin. So the last thing he's going to tell you to do is just go ahead and sin because it really doesn't matter after all, I've forgiven you anyhow. And yet, that's the mentality that some Christians have. And I would have to say that if they have that mentality, you may have to question their reality of their salvation. God didn't save you to be crumb bomb. God saved you to be holy. doesn't mean we're instantly perfect. doesn't mean we're never sin again. It means that there's a direction of our life that is towards holiness, towards godliness, towards the right thing. There's a direction. God didn't call us to uncleanness. He didn't save you to just go ahead and sin all you want. Why would he do that? Why would God, it's almost like God takes you out of the slime pit, washes the mud off you, and then says, go back and play in the mud. Because it really doesn't matter. After all, I'll just clean you up again tomorrow. No, sin is a serious thing. God saved you to redeem you from sin. He did not call you to uncleanness. And the word there for uncleanness is Acatharsis, it usually refers to all kinds of moral uncleanness. It, a lot of it has to do with moral uncleanness. God did not save you to just be unclean, but to be holy. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God. Here's another reason. If you reject it, who are you rejecting? God. This isn't something that Paul dreamed up. 
This is something dreamed up by the apostles. This is something commanded by God. And if you turn your back on this, you're rejecting God, not man. And, and it's a sad thing. I know some pastors who had people sit in their offices and, and, and some of them were immoral, in immorality. They were contemplating divorcing their wife and going marrying someone else. And they point out, you know, this is sin. God hates it. God will judge you for that. And they say, I don't care if he does or not. That's like dumb things to say. You don't care if God judges you or not. You're not rejecting man. You're rejecting God. You're telling God to stuff it. Rather, he gives you the ability to do it. He just doesn't tell you to go live a godly life and hope you can make it. He gives us the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that. He changes our nature so that we no longer want to sin, but we hate sin. He gives us a new direction, a new desire. See, and that goes back to the whole idea. You show me somebody who has no desire to keep themselves from sinning, and I'll show you somebody who probably is not a believer because God puts within you at the moment of your salvation a desire to please Him, a desire to live a holy life. doesn't mean you make it, but you want to. And when you show me somebody that just throws their hands up and says, it doesn't matter if I sin or not, God will forgive me anyhow. They don't understand His grace. He's given us His Holy Spirit that enables us to live a godly life. In verse 9, he turns and talks about a second very practical matter. Not only are the Thessalonian believers to live a holy life in terms of their um, moral dimension, but they're also to live a holy life in terms of their work, their vocation, and their love for one another. But concerning brotherly love, verse 9, you have no need that I should write to you, for yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Brotherly love. And all this is is the self-sacrificial giving up of something for someone else, for uh, going out of your way to help another believer, for the character quality of wanting to give something of yourself. Usually what we do is we give to get. The one who loves gives to give. Just because it's what God wants them to do. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Love is kind. Love is uh, gentle. Love does not seek the worst in other people. Love is not easily provoked. It doesn't wear its feelings on its shirt sleeve. Love bears no evil. In other words, love keeps a short list. I remember walking in, talking to a man that I had not seen for 10 years, over 10 years. And the first thing he did was talk about some offense that my brother had did to him a long time ago, supposedly. And I'm sitting there like... Get over it. Get a life. Bearing a grudge for years. For years. Um, love doesn't have a long list of offenses. It keeps the list clean. And I know a lot of Christians, when you cross them, say, well, you know, you did that to me four years, five months, two days, and three hours ago. You know, they've got it pegged down. They keep their offenses Paul says, you are taught by God. Hmm. Where does this kind of love come from? It doesn't come from the world, does it? The world's kind of love is uh, you, get, you love in order to get. The Bible's definition of love is your love because that's what you're to do. That's part of God. How did God love the world? What did he get out of this deal? He could have just started over, couldn't he? He just could have raced the universe and started over again. How did he love the world? He gave Christ, self-sacrifice, cost. How did Christ love us? He died for us. Cost, price was paid. He said, we urge you, indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. Not only do they love one another in that context, but they love all the brethren in Macedonia. It goes beyond just them to all of Macedonia. Macedonia was the province. 
So it went to everywhere. Not only did they love each other in that church, but they loved people in other churches. Now that's kind of tough today, isn't it? We don't love other people in other churches. But their love was shed abroad, and uh, everybody knew it. Remember, Paul goes back earlier on in this passage and says, everybody heard about your love all over the place. It's spoken of all over the world, of your love and care and concern for one another. And he says, we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Just keep it up. You don't need me to tell you how to love one another. You're already doing that. Just keep it up. Just keep it up. And then he encouraged them in verse 11 that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Verse 11 and 12 are probably two of the most neglected verses in the New Testament. Let me tell you what it's saying. You aspire to lead a quiet life. What does it mean to lead a quiet life? Pardon? I think he couples it there, quiet life and to mind your own business with the idea that the Christian is not, I know this goes against a lot, we're not a political activist. We're not a disruptive element in society. I think the idea here is a disruption. Are we a disruptive element in society? And I have to look at most Christian days and say, yeah, we are. A disruptive element in society. Um, we're against abortion, so what do we do? Well, we lobby, we run picket lines, we write our senators, we become obnoxious in some cases. Others even go so far as to shoot the abortion doctors. That's not leading a quiet life. That's not minding your own business. The idea there of minding your own business is you're not always trying to stick your nose into what everybody else is doing. Rather, you're worried about being what you should be. You're not always, you're not always um, involving yourself in others' matters. And I think this carries over politically and socially. We're not always out to try and, uh, and make Christ another lobby group, another political party. I remember a long time ago, not a long time ago, it was about four or five years ago. In fact, what I'm going to do, I'll put this paper out on the web so you can get to it. But I, I, we had a situation come up here at Open Door where there was going to be a bar, the bar down the road here, I don't know, somewhere down here by the convenience store, their, their lease came up or something like that. And a whole group in the church wanted to take a petition around all the members in the church and have them sign to get the bar out of the area down here. They wanted the bar gone. Now, as you stop and think about that, what is your initial read on that? Good or bad? What do you think, Arnett? Got him thinking. But they wanted us to, they wanted us to set up a petition table out here and have the members of the church sign a petition to give the city council to deny their liquor license. Is that because they were close to the school or just because, because they were down the road? All right. So, you know, I, I listened to, it's a, we were in the deacon meeting talking about this, and it was thrown in our laps as the deacons and what we should do, whether we should have petitions or not. And it went back and forth, and finally, Big Mouth here spoke up and asked them, said, well, let me ask a question. What is our purpose as a church? To collect signatures on petitions? Um... I said, that, that's one problem there. So let me ask another question. What is worse, a bar here or a bar across the town? In the big scheme of things, which worse? Both bad. All right. So I said, then why are we going to all the energy to shut the bar down here and not the one over there? All right. I mean, if they're both bad, we should be petitioning for any bar. All right. 
Then I asked the question, I said, where do you stop this thing? Do we, um, do we take petitions to be allowed to keep guns now? Where do you stop this petition thing? And I said, what, what happens, I said, when we have all these people sign up for this stuff and we miss the point of being a Christian, which is to be individual salt and light. I mean, I'm not off, I'm not, I'm, you know, if you ask me, Al, what's your personal opinion? I don't want a bar there or across town or anywhere. But why pick on that one? And why make it a big deal? And why lose the, the mission of the church? Now, we debated this, of course, and there were some other people that, that had different opinions. But, but when I, I look at this, I don't see the church, and I don't see the early church, as becoming politically active in their society, like ours is today. It's just not there. You don't see Paul going through the Roman world collecting signatures on removal of the Colosseum. You didn't see uh, Paul asking for an impeachment vote against Nero, although he was a pretty bad egg. Um, you didn't see the early Christians petitioning to get rid of the abortion clinics and the brothels and the false temples. What did they do? lived a quiet, peaceable life and minded their own business and were salt and light. And a lot of people just, you know, there, there's some people when, when they talk, it's like taking your fingernails and going across a chalkboard. And when I hear the Christians who want to get politically active, you know, if we can just uh, get the laws passed, we'll have a Christian country, will we? Someone asked, what side of the picket line does it matter you walk on about homosexuality, whether you're pro or anti? If you don't know the Lord, where do you go? And what, mattered, what does it matter if you're pro or anti-abortion? If you die and are lost, where do you go? Hell. What we have done is we've made Christianity in this country just another political movement, just another party. Jesus is just another candidate running for office. And we get all upset when our national leaders don't have our Christian values. And I have to ask the question, if they're pagans, why should they have our Christian values? Do they? Are they supposed to? What would happen had Christianity in the early centuries gone out and tried to eliminate slavery and tried to eliminate abortions and tried to eliminate the moral and social ills of the day and try to get rid of the costume. What happened to Christianity? What do you think would happen? Well, they did, but not directly. They would have been crushed. There would have been another political movement. God did not want the church to be a political movement. The church is a movement in the hearts of men. Paul's saying, I want you to lead a quiet life and mind your own business. In the middle of persecution, just mind your own business, lead a quiet life, do what you're supposed to do, and work with your hands as we commanded you. Work. Now that's a novel concept to many Christians. We're going to talk about this more when we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter um, 3, 2 Thessalonians 3. Paul says, I hear there's some attack toss among you. That's a word for unruly. What's it mean unruly? That means you're walking out of line. You're walking out of step. You're not walking as you should, but what are you doing? You're busybodies. What's a busybody? Somebody that's always not, they're not minding their own business. They're minding everybody else's business. They're not paying attention to what they're doing. He said, I want you to work with your own hands that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Work to provide your own needs, to pay your debts, so that you might not lack anything. Now I know some good Christian communists. Their idea is what's yours is theirs, and what's theirs is theirs. But they don't have anything, so they make out better. And then he hides under that verse and says, well, if you see your brother or sister in need and you don't do anything for them, how dwells the love of God in you? 
And yet you look, they're alive and they're lazy. They're not working diligently. They're not acting responsibly. They're not paying their bills. They're not working with their own hands. They just want a handout. And if you don't give them a handout, they think you're the bad person. Paul says something very interesting in First or Second Thessalonians 3. He says, I've told you, I'm telling you again, just like I told you when I was there, if you don't work, you don't eat. Hunger does a lot to motivate somebody to do some work. Why is that? Because we are to be an example. The point here, the, the bottom line boiling down of 11 and 12, is that as believers, we're to be the best employee we can be for our employer. We're to do our best. There's no room for laziness, slothfulness. There's no room for jerking around for the believer. We are to do our absolute, very 100% best for our employer because that is a godly testimony. I remember when the Billy Graham crusade came here a while back, they had this Operation Andrew where the goal was you would take a co-worker to the crusade. I'm sitting there wondering how many Christians try to get somebody in their line of employment to go with them to the crusade only to get laughed at because they were such a sorry excuse for a worker. If you're a bad worker, if you're bad on your job, if you don't do diligent labor, what kind of testimony is that? It's none. Paul says you need to walk properly towards those that are on the outside. Those that are on the outside of what? On the outside of the church. One of the requirements for church leadership in 1 Timothy is that a man be above reproach and that he have a good reputation among those who are on the outside. That he pay his bills. That he take care of his business. That he does it with integrity and honor. That you may lack nothing. This is very practical things here. Paul, Paul is telling them, I want... God's will is that you be holy. God's will is that you love one another. And God's will is that you work hard, diligently, lead a quiet life, and mind your own business. And in 1 Peter, he says, uh, if any of you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but glorify God. And right before this, he says, I don't want you to suffer as a murderer or as a thief. We know who those are. As an evildoer, we know who an evildoer is. But as a busybody in other man's matters. The word for busybody is a very fascinating word. It was used in those days to refer to a troublesome meddler. Someone who caused trouble. And politically it was used to someone who was a political agitator, an anarchist, a disruptor of order in society. He says, if you suffer like that, you're not glorifying God. You're paying the penalty for your sin. Now, it may be that as we live a quiet life, we have to take a stand if we suffer the penalty, so be it. But sometimes I think Christians go out to try and draw the penalty themselves and claim, I'm suffering for Jesus. I know when I listen to the abortion guys, the anti-abortion people, who go and break the laws and get thrown in jail and then say, we're suffering for Jesus, I think that brings a shame on the name of Christ. We're to obey the laws of the land. We're to be godly models of what it is to be a citizen. We're not to be like the world. We don't fight the world. You know, the world says, if I have a problem, I get a black card and I march. I write my senator. I, I, I sue. I got to write. I got a letter from Pat Robertson in the mail not long ago. The Christian Anti-Defamation League. He wanted some money to form this coalition of lawyers, and we would what the lawyers would do is sue anybody that said anything bad about Christianity. I'm sort of saying, wow, that's a novel way to reach your society for Christ. We'll just sue you. If you don't like what we say, we'll take you to court. Right. That, that's really a positive influence. I, I wonder where some Christians' heads are when, they, when it comes to this stuff. What they're even thinking. It's amazing to me. But, but he says, I want you to live a quiet and peaceable life. Well, next week what we'll do is we're going to talk about the rapture of the church. And probably next week we'll only get through the last part of chapter 4 here. Um, lots of interesting discussion on that. Christian Other Christians? Yes. You know, now, because I know now, I, I was in a class here about what's real uh, a couple months ago, I had a little class on, on this uh, 
and now the gas is going on now. Yes, sir. The women are still in a lot of the uh, Sexual discrimination, harassment, all that. Yes. Yes, and I. Uh, what's your opinion about all that now? Because this happened in the churches a lot now. I think it's a shame. I think it's a travesty. I was just talking to a man the other day um, here in the church, and one of the People that used to come to this church uh, had a significant altercation with something that went on here. And uh, their statement to this man was they would sue them, go to the ACLU and sue the church. I'm sort of saying, wow, that's a godly response. I'll sue the church. That, that, to me, that is a, a travesty. Um, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 talks about that. We have no business suing each other. I mean, we can handle our, and, and, and the point is, it would be rather better for you to be defrauded than to, to take, the point is, if I go and sue someone else, I'm saying I'm getting justice, but what's it doing to the cause of Christ? And the point is, I'd, 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 I don't want to bring any kind of uh, slur or anything on the cause of Christ. And yet people do that. Yeah, I, I have a problem with that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. But well, let's close in a word of prayer here. Father, thanks for this time, and I pray that we think about these things. There's some things here that we need to think about. Um, and as far as our lives in the world and in the church, I pray that we be an example, Father, of godly character. That we would honor you in the way we walk, in the way we talk, and the things we do that we will glorify you in all the things we have to do and say in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.